Welcome back, y'all, to the Rabbit Hole Show. Uh, again, this is Charles Height, and we also have a special co-host this week, uh, and he was uh, episode 28, but UJ Harris is here to help co-host this week. Thank you uh, for inviting me, man. This is awesome. Hey, it's glad, I'm glad to have you. Um, so we all have a story. We all have struggles, and the good news is we are not alone. And this week, uh, we have a very special guest, someone I met uh, two weeks ago at the Barn Brothers. Um, and the Barn is a group of men that we meet on Tuesday nights, and I would say we're barn kind of filled of misfits, just figuring out how to do life together. That's right. Um, so this week, uh, Mark Whitaker, we have as a very special guest. Uh, so Mark, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on and join us on the rabbit hole show and just share your story and life's journey. So thank you. Well, thank you for, thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Um, so Mark, just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of, uh, where you are now and, uh, then we'll jump into your story for our listeners. Yeah. But where I'm at now, I'm executive director of Coca-Cola Consolidated. And Coca-Cola Consolidated is a different company than Coca-Cola Atlanta. Coca-Cola Consolidated is the largest bottler, would be the bottles and cans, largest bottler in America. And, and I'm executive director over T-Factor, T standing for transform, transformation, which is all about uh, how we share with, uh, with the world uh, about how we integrate faith and work. And we're a faith-based purpose-driven, servant leadership-oriented company, and we have 102 plant sites and chaplains in every plant and over 100 prayer groups and dozens of Bible studies, and and uh, we're, we're, we integrate faith and work, and it's transformed our culture, doing it God's way. Actually, our first official purpose statement is, is our only purpose is to honor God in all we do by serving others, pursuing excellence, and growing profitably is our official purpose statement. Where do you see a publicly traded company with a purpose statement to honor God in all you do. Right. I don't think there is. Very unique. <laughs> very unique. Very uncommon. And, and that's and so blessed to be part of that because that's exactly the opposite of who I would have been in my 30s, hmm. 30 years ago. Exactly. And uh, I'm excited to hear your story again and to have you, Jay, here to help facilitate uh, this episode. And uh, just, again, as you said, the transformation that the Lord has done in your life, because uh, when I first heard your story, I would, you know, never have expected you to be where you are currently from 30 years ago. So it's God does a lot of works and works miracles. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So, yeah, hearing that messy story with a good ending something only god could do amen that that is and that's 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 god's domain right there you know um if you'd mentioned coca-cola consolidated and i know a little bit about coca-cola consolidated i'm glad you contrasted it from coke where i actually worked a little bit after business school and a lot of people get them mixed up but they're two very different companies two very different cultures and uh and that's a really fantastic thing what do you think makes that place work? Well, how's it? How's it? How has it been able to sustain that 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 culture, a Christ-centered culture? Just you know, just because I think you know, corporate America seems to be taking you know, sort of moving. Away. Certainly, it's not embracing faith as as, as Coca-Cola Consolidated has, but it works there. And you know, personally. well, you know, we're a 120-year-old company, and we've been a faith-based, purpose-driven company for 23 years, started by our chairman and CEO Frank Harrison. But I'll tell you, he's built so many so many leaders and so much succession planning. I mean, it's here for decades and it's here. I mean, it's here to, it's here to stay. I mean, it's so engraved in, in the culture and even the next generation of the emerging leaders uh, it's, it's, it's here to stay. Uh, and it's made such a difference in terms of our retention rates and our absenteeism and low turnover. And I mean, it just, when someone can bring their whole self to work, I mean, what a great thing that is. And also even non-believers, they love the culture. They love having a supervisor that listens well and has empathy for them and advocates for them and helps them develop. And <laughs> basically a servant leader who doesn't like a servant leader hmm. is as, as who you work for. Right, Everyone. Right. Wow. So it's just a great culture that just continues uh, decade after decade. That's amazing. And, and, and of course, the company's delivering very strong results, you know, for, for shareholders, for customers and everything. So this works not just not just, you know, something that feels good. It, it actually works from a business productivity perspective. 
It does. Uh, do we do it for God and to a purpose statement being to honor God in all we do, serving others, pursuing excellence and growing profitably, but it's also good for business. Amen. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Go ahead. Um, so let's jump into a little bit of your story and kind of, uh, you know, where you are, how you got to where you are right now. And, uh, um, yeah, your addiction to greed is, you know, you, you know, shared the other, uh, night with us and, um, yeah, just talk to us about your story and allow our listeners to hear, uh, who Mark Whitaker was and, uh, who Mark Whitaker is now. Yeah. yeah well, I grew up in, uh, Cincinnati, north of, uh, Cincinnati, live in Florence, Kentucky. Now it's just a few miles south of <laughs> Cincinnati, but grew up north of Cincinnati. My mom, we just celebrated her 89th birthday here a couple of days ago. And Amen. my dad passed at 90 and they were 66 years married, Christian, wow. had Christian parents, wonderful parents, grew up, uh, had, uh, I was one of four. So I had two brothers and a sister and, and I was the only one to, to go to college. So my parents would force me to uh, go to church. I, I wasn't uh, eager to go. And, and so I, if I look, people look back then, they say, well, gosh, you went to church as a youngster, but boy, there's a huge difference between uh, going to church and, and being a Christian. You can put an apple in the garage, but that doesn't mean it's a car. Correct. <laughs> and so, you know, I went to church as a kid. So I heard of God and I knew of God as a child, but I was really into sciences, was in the physics club in high school, was the only child of, of four to go to college. And I went eight years straight on full scholarship, scholarship at Ohio State for bachelor's and master's and a PhD at an Ivy League university in biochemistry, eight years straight from high school, paid for by scholarship, academic scholarship, PhD in biochemistry from Cornell, which is an Ivy League university, one of the top biochemistry schools in, in the world. And I can remember through those eight years of sciences, I was already on the fence. Do I believe in God or not? And then I, you know, before I even started college and then I'm going to college and all I heard professors say, if you believe in God, you can't be a scientist. If you believe in God, uh, especially in non-Christian, you know, non-Christian school, it was all about Darwinism and evolution and Big Bang Theory. So all I was it was hearing about is there is no God for eight years of college, including an Ivy League university. And I also heard while I was at Cornell, uh, lots of students say, wow, we're going to make millions of dollars with, uh, um, you know, with with an education from an Ivy League school. And I mean, I mean, people go to Ivy League school a lot of them. I don't want to say all, but a lot of them because they really want to be successful and, and really earn, you know, earn a lot of uh, compensation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those. And so I'm graduated at 25. The average age is 32 and <laughs> got a great job right out of college. And I remember my wife and I, we, I met my wife when she was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade. We went to all four of our high school proms uh, together. I was senior class president. She was treasurer of her class. And, mm. uh, and during the time when we got married, she wasn't a, she wasn't a believer either. And and so we're married and and I started my first job and a couple of years after that, especially having a PhD from an Ivy League school, I became a vice president. The company moved us to Germany for four years. I became a senior vice president. So by the time I was 27 or 28, I was earning in the high six figures living in Frankfurt, Germany for four years, living in a big four floor, four floor house, uh, driving a Mercedes. And by that time, I was 27. Yeah. And I was doing some joint ventures with a company called I was senior VP, vice president responsible for joint ventures and acquisitions and mergers. And I was doing a joint venture with a company called ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, a larger company even than the company I was with. I was with a company called Degusa, a large chemical company in Frankfurt, Germany. And this company, ADM, was the 56th largest company in America, 70 billion in revenue. Uh you can imagine the 56th largest company in America, publicly traded company in America, 30,000 employees. And so the CEO started talking to me about, about offering me a job. He said, well, we could move things a lot faster instead of joint venture, instead of a joint venture with your company, you just come and join us. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm four years in Germany. I was two years in New York with them. And I had the right, I mean, I had mentors and it was about all about doing the right thing. I mean, I really had, I would say a due north, uh, a due north compass and and really uh, that it was all about ethics and doing the right thing in that part of my time in my life and i would say i did not have a greed addiction too i wanted to be successful but it wasn't an addiction it was a lot more balanced okay. at that point in my life but then adm had made an offer they made an offer to me that was about ninefold with the bonuses and base salary and 
everything was about ninefold for me to come to Illinois from Frankfurt, Germany, to be a divisional president uh, of Archer Daniels Midland, number 56 on the Fortune 500, to be a corporate vice president of the company, basically the number four executive out of 30,000 employees, and I was 32 years old. The CEO was 75, the president was 69, and I was 32. Wow. So I had plenty of room to move up because they were double my age, too. So I was going to be mentored by a couple of executives that were going to retire in three, four, five years after I, I started. So what an opportunity to be 32, number four executive, the seven top executives each got their own plane. So I had access to a Falcon 50 for about eight years being there. I bought the CEO's home my first month. Him being 75, wanted to move something smaller. I had a 13,000 square foot house with an eight-car garage. And boy, I filled that car, eight-car garage up with eight cars, a Ferrari, two BMWs, two Mercedeses. I mean, the best way to describe where I was at in that time of my life, I was Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber. <laughs> you know, the jet, the mansion, the eight cars, horse riding stables where your kids ride in the inside arena. I mean, this was a mansion. This is our CEO was a billionaire who we bought that home, who we bought that home from. And so that's where we lived for eight years. And then I did start to get a grief addiction. I got addicted to that lifestyle, the plane, the jet, the, the cars. I mean, it, it's an addiction. And I got addicted to that lifestyle. So my life started to change compared to where I was in, in Frankfurt, Germany. It really became an obsession to the point where I couldn't wait to become the COO instead of being the divisional president to be the actual company president. I mean, think about it. Most people would be happy being number four executive. Oh, I kept thinking about how quickly can I become the number two from the number four. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all I kept thinking about. Wow. And my wife became a Christian before me. She was 30 when she became a Christian. Uh, we were 32. I was 32 when I started with a company. So a couple of years with the company, the company came to me, the CEO, and said, look, now we see you as part of the family. Uh, now we see you as, as we trust you. We trust you with our lives. And we're going to start sharing with some things with you that we do in the company. And they started sharing with me how they have an international cartel fixing prices on some of the ingredients. And it's difficult to buy a food or beverage in the grocery store that doesn't have something from ADM in it. Largest food additive company. They and Cargill are the two largest food additive companies in the world. Things like a high fructose mm -hmm. corn syrup that's in everything. Kellogg cereal and Pillsbury and Kraft and Sprite and Coca-Cola. and I mean... Lactic acid, so every acid, company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you buy a processed food or beverage in the grocery store, it most likely includes ingredients from ADM in it. If you look at that ingredient label on the side of the package, right? Mm -hmm, a Seventy right. billion dollar company. So they were fixing prices of some of those ingredients and really ripping off the consumers uh, by jacking the prices up, working with the competitors instead of uh, instead of competing like it's required by law in the U.S. That's what capitalism is built on. They really were fixing the prices and and became almost like a monopoly. And it's it's breaking antitrust laws and it's illegal. People go to prison for it. It's a huge fraud of price fixing in the U.S. But I tell you, I was making so much money. They told me everybody does it when they brought me into it. They gave me a hundred thousand dollar check and twenty five thousand shares of stock, which was about a million dollars about an hour before wow. they even asked me to come into it. So, you know, then they had me really hooked an hour before. Mm -hmm. Boy, Mark, here's a million. Now you're going to make tens of millions over time. And it just was, I, I just couldn't walk away. I had the addiction by that point. Yeah. I couldn't walk away from it. And so I, you know, I agreed to be mentored to eventually take over that international cartel and fix the prices with our competitors around the world. I was being taught how to do it. They told me it was going on for 12 years, which was which is 10 years before I even joined the company. Mm -hmm. So because I, I was only with the company for two years. So I get involved. I, I start being mentored. I start being trained. I share it with my wife about seven months later. I share it with Ginger, who's a Christian who's going to Bible study two nights a week, church every Sunday. Now, I went to church with her, but it was like when I went with my parents. In one ear and out the other. People, if they would ask me, was I Christian? I'd say, oh, yeah, I go to the church uh, in Decatur, Illinois. And I thought, again, I thought just going to church means you're a Christian, like joining the club. I didn't yeah. know something in the heart. I thought it was just to show up. Mm -hmm. So I started sharing with Ginger about what was going on and what I was being trained. She says, oh, my gosh, Mark, that sounds like fraud. 
And she said, is that legal? Ginger asked me and I said, uh, no, it's not legal, legal, but they tell me everybody does it. And you have to do this if you're in the commodity business like us. And then she said, oh, wow. She said, who pays for this? And how much does the company earn? I said, the company earns hundreds of millions of dollars extra. I mean, they already earn about $4 billion out of $70 billion, $4 billion profit legally, but then they earn an extra about billion dollars a year from this scheme. A billion dollars a year. And she said, who pays it? I said, the consumers. They pay $50 worth of groceries. They pay five or six extra dollars. That's it. Every consumer around the world, because we have plants all around the world. So anybody goes to a grocery store, they're paying a little extra, but not much, four or five dollars. She said, you mean my grandma? on Social Security at $200 a week. Social Security is paying for this. And her largest expense is her groceries. She said, Mark, I don't know if I can live with this. And then she told me she was going to go back in her study and pray about it. And we talk about it later. And I knew then I was in trouble. (laughs) And she went back and she prayed about it. A couple hours later, she came out and she said, Mark, uh, God led her to a decision. I said, what decision, Ginger? And she said, God led me to turn you into the FBI. She said, you got to turn yourself in. you got to do it today. If you go to prison, I'll stay with you. But she said, you're going to turn yourself in. You're involved only seven months. It's been going on for 12 years. But she said, I can't live with this fraud, and I'd rather be homeless than live in a mansion with an eight-car garage. And she's driving, by the way, a, an old Wrangler Jeep, and I'm driving a Ferrari. The cars just didn't mean anything to her. And it meant everything to me. You know, we were yeah. on two different, she was following Jesus and I was following the world. We were just in yeah. two different books. And so, yeah, that's when she came out and she said, you're turning yourself in, you're doing it today. Mm. Wow. So what what's going through your head at that moment? Or what was going through your head when she told you she was going back to her study to pray? Oh, I knew that I was in trouble. I said, nothing <laughs> ever turned out good for me when she said she was going to go pray about it. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, I just thought, and, I, and then when she said she's going to turn me in, I, the CEO's a billionaire. He was best friends with President Clinton. He went to President Nixon's funeral on President Clinton's plane. Mm. And I said, Ginger, this CEO will destroy us. I mean, I'm more afraid about him than prison. I said, mm-hmm. this company has the resources, the 56th largest company in America, they will destroy us. And she said, you know what, Mark, my God is bigger uh, than your CEO. She said, her CEO is Jesus. And God will protect us. And she said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it today. She would not back down. And I knew her since she was in seventh grade. And I knew she met it. <laughs> wow. Was there a point in, 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 in since you guys knew each other, you and Ginger knew each other for so many years, sometime you were, you said you in the seventh grade, I think you said. I mean, was yeah. there, were, you, were you all sort of in the same, on the sort of the same path, believing and wanting the same thing? And then at some point when she got saved, things sort of changed? Is that, is that, is that yeah, I would say that. Yeah. She okay. became saved at 30. And this would have been a couple of years later, you know, when I'm, when I'm sharing about the price fixing and the antitrust case and the international cartel. Yeah. So, yeah, we were starting a, a different path. She was, and I looked at it. Well, I'm so busy. 90% of my income is in, well, I'm making six figures in base salary, but seven figures with bonuses and stock ops. I was earning two or three million a year for the eight years I was there. And that's 1989. That's mm. like $10 million today. Yeah. Wow. And I thought, well, as long as she's busy, I'm okay with her busy at church because that allows me to be busy and get more of my bonuses and meet the performance parameters I had to meet. So I loved her being busy uh, with church. But then when she prayed about this, it was not in my favor. Yeah, I hear that. And, and, you know, when that started to happen, was there, how was the marriage during that time? Because, you know, a lot of folks listen to this or or some of folks are married and and working through some of some different challenges where it seems like you're starting to go in different direction. I mean, how was the marriage when she, when she became really going from maybe knowing God in her head to really knowing him in a heart and developing that intimate, intentional relationship? And how did your, how did that impact your marriage while you were, you know, working through what you were working through? Well, I think, I think with us married at, at, it's, you know, knowing each other so young since seventh and eighth grade and going through our proms together. And, 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 and by this point we would have been, let's see, I would have been 34 when she's turning me into the FBI and we got married at 21. So we've already been married for quite a few years and already knew each other probably for almost 20 years, 20 years. So I, yeah, I would say the relationship was really strong. It was that type of relationship that for both of us, we're going to get through it through thick and thin, no matter if we disagree. And her being a Christian, she's always thinking, well, at some point, you know, she's only a Christian by three or four years by that point herself, right. by the time she's turning me into the FBI. So at some, so she's really feeling that at some point, I'm also going to get it at some point. Yeah. And I'm going to church with her. So she's, she's exposing God to me, even though it was one ear and out the other. 
yeah. for me there. She just thinks eventually I'm going to get it like she did. Yeah. And that, that's you still got faith that I'm going to I'm going to get there. Exactly. That's that's incredible faith, because you could have the opposite where you have someone who feels like this, this is a hopeless you know, situation. This this guy is hopeless. We're, I'm never, never going to get through him and get through his his pursuits and his dreams and 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 this and, and the, the the Lamborghinis or the Ferraris or whatever you said. The, and and the big you know seven figure stock options and you know comp packages and stuff. So that's amazing that she went. She chose faith over fear or flight. Maybe yeah. That's that's she that's did. God working. Yes, absolutely. She did, and she just felt that I'd get there eventually, and eventually I I did. But it was a lot of years coming. I was about ten years after. To her and this yeah. is only three or four years into that into okay. that journey okay. so yeah she turned me in you know forced me to turn myself in uh we did that day here's a case that's going on for 12 years she blew she blew the whistle on it the day that she learned about it uh she didn't even work at adm she didn't even really quite understand a lot about what even price fixing was but she knew it was illegal she knew it was fraud and 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 basically, I had the choice after four hours with the FBI to either wear a wire and go after the ones that's been doing it for 12 years and been teaching me the last seven months, uh, mentoring me how to do it. So I had to go after the kingpins, you know, help them with gather evidence or I had to be arrested. And I, I agreed to wear a wire and I wore a wire 10 hours a day for three years. Three full years, every Monday through Friday for three years. And it became the largest price fixing case in history started by my started by my wife, Ginger. Wow. Um, So you're wearing a wire 10 hours a day for three years. What's going on in your head? Just, you know, I mean, a lot of anxiety, depression, sleepless nights, unsure of the outcome. Uh, You know, just talk to us what's going on in your head. How are you through day to day? I was a basket case. I was falling apart. I wasn't worried about going to prison near as much as the company just killing me when they learned because the FBI would tell me if they're wiring me up at six o'clock every morning, shaving my chest, put microphones on my chest at six in the morning, had a tape recorder attached to my back with an athletic band wrapped around my waist, had another tape recorder in a briefcase, third tape recorder in a notebook. The, the equipment I wore undercover is in the FBI museum in DC now. This is the largest price fixing case in US history. Uh, you know, a, a billion dollar theft for 12 years in a row. And so I, I, I was falling apart. I lost 60 pounds. People at work thought I had cancer. Um, and uh, I mean, it was, I was a nervous wreck. And I, the main, why I was a nervous wreck is what is the company going to do to me if they catch me wearing a wire or once I'm at a court attest- testifying against them and then they know I'm wearing a wire, what are they going to do to me? So that, that what if, what's going to happen next I was falling apart tremendously. So, I mean, I can't imagine being in your shoes, having to wear a wire and uh, all those thoughts going through your head, but definitely, you know, the weight loss and anxiety from my story. Uh, and then UJ from, you know, his story from yeah. the civil war and escaping execution. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anxiety hits everyone. It doesn't matter. As I've said, your area code, zip code, uh, the amount of wealth you have, the family you're born into, everyone I believe is affected by anxiety in a different way. Um, and you know, that's the purpose of this podcast to allow people to come on and share their stories. And so that our listeners can hear, we all have a story. We all have struggles. We all deal with anxiety or depression or whatever it may be. And you're not alone. Someone else out there is going through what you're going through. And just hearing that, uh, alleviates some of that, anxiety and helps you get to the next day. Cause all you can do is tackle today because you're not promised tomorrow and you can't undo the past. You can only do, uh, and be in the moment and prepare for tomorrow, but you're not promised tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the people would drive by our home and they'd say, gosh, this guy lives in a mansion. He's got a corporate jet. He's got an eight car garage with eight, eight, eight Ferraris and Mercedes and BMWs and okay. you know everything the world has to offer at a young age. In reality, I was falling apart. So one, the world saw one thing, but I had a void in my heart the size of Grand Canyon because I learned that money wasn't going to fill that. I was already making millions. And I'm thinking, what's, you know, I get that Ferrari and two weeks later, I'm saying, what's next? What's next? There's got to be more than this. I could have yeah. got to the level of Bill Gates and I would say, what's next? Money was not filling that void. And then wearing a wire, too, I was falling apart. So the world sees this 
guy on top of the world, but it really I'm falling apart. Yeah. I tell you, one of the things, and you know, we, we talk about a lot of the barn, which is what I like is taking off the mask, right? I mean, cause we, we wear the masks so well and some of some, we wear layers of mask, you know, and to the point where we don't even know who are, who we really are. How, how did you cope with, I mean, what did, what sort of coping, you know, strategies did you take advantage of? Did you employ, you know, during the time with the way in the wire and just when everything was going apart, was it, were you pressing into the Lord then or was it, or was that still too early? I mean, what were you doing, if anything at all? Yeah, I didn't believe in God at all. I still right. had that okay. science block. Okay. Boy, you're a PhD okay. scientist. Okay. You know, I had some of the best professors in the world say, if you believe in God, you can't be in my class. Right. Okay. No, I wouldn't believe in God uh, at all then. Right. And I tell you, it really led in not having God to lean on. I was blowing the driveway. There's a documentary on my website, markwhitaker.com, and it has actors reenact that on uh, this documentary on Discovery Channel with the three real FBI agents been inter- interviewed and, and Ginger and I, and they have actors re- in reenacting. I'm blowing the driveway off with a gas leaf blower at three in the morning. During rainstorms, okay. my wires still, my microphones taped to my chest, the tape recorder okay. on my right. black uh, back, my tie on, and I'm blowing the driveway off at three. I couldn't sleep. I was sleeping two or three hours a night. Right. I was falling apart. So the so basically, I wasn't coping at all. I was yeah. falling apart. I was having a nervous breakdown, even thinking often about just killing myself. Wow. And eventually, I tried. Huh. Okay. Can you talk? Do you mind talking a little bit about that? So, you know, the title of this show is the rabbit hole. So you were in a real rabbit hole. You're spiraling. Yeah. Sounds like I was, and I thought, well, someday I'm going to have to testify against the CEO of the 56th largest company in America, the 90th largest company in the world, a billionaire, a powerful man, a very aggressive man. I'm going to have to testify, and he's going to. He's good. I'm, I'm going to have to worry about my kids, my wife, myself, the rest of yeah. my life. Your family. And would it be to easier you. to be dead? Would it easier to be dead? Then there's no more body wearing a wire. There's never going to be a trial because they're not going to get someone else to go in there and gather evidence. Would it be easier to be dead than than to be a witness against one of the most powerful companies in the world? Yeah. That's wow. that's what I was debating. And I yeah. thought, you know what? It may be easier to be dead. And when did that thought start creeping into your head? Um, I'd say within five or six months uh, of wearing a wire and I wore it three years. So within a few months, I thought and by the time I was losing weight, not sleeping well, staying up all night because I couldn't sleep, basically kind of almost having a nervous breakdown. So within a few months for those couple years of wearing a wire, I, I was thinking, you know, am I better off dead? And shortly after wearing a wire, I actually tried to take my own life. I tried to kill myself eventually. Yeah. And, um, how was that? Uh, you know, I've, me personally, with my story, I've uh, attempted a few times and by the grace of God, wasn't successful. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit and people uh, were placed uh, in my path, you know, those attempts and were preventing me from being able to go through with those attempts. And uh, by the grace of God, I'm still here. And uh, yeah, when I was Suicide was the only option in my mind. Um, that's the only option I saw because I was such a burden on everyone else that just me being gone would get rid of a lot of problems for everyone else. When in reality, that's a big lie. Yeah, that was exactly my my thought too. And what really led up to the most serious the, the serious suicide attempt that I had, even though I had thoughts of it multiple times before I actually kind of tried to try to take my own life is that in the end, they got me, a, the FBI got me a six month plea agreement to go to prison like a Martha Stewart sentence, a white collar camp, six months. The others are going to go to prison for several years. And uh, we're there in front of our lawyer and my, and the, and the lawyer says, Mark, the FBI got you a deal of a lifetime, six months. This is a deal of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You were involved with price fixing. You helped. You're going to go six months. The others are going to go to prison for several years. Sign it. Ginger said, Mark, I beg you to sign it. And I looked at Ginger. I said, Ginger, I had to wear a wire 10 hours a day for three years because of her. I told her. Mm-hmm. And I took that plea agreement and ripped it up in her face. And I'm going to do the opposite she wants me to do. I ripped up the six month plea agreement, fired the lawyer on the spot. Mm. And and hired several lawyers and fought the case for three years in the courts and got eight and a half years in prison instead when I would have had a six month plea deal if I would have signed the the plea. And so when I had eight and a half years and and I had a few months before I had to go to prison, 
and I would have had six months. Then I said, now I'm really better off dead. And I tried to, I pulled my car in one of those garages. I'm a PhD biochemist, so I calculated the number of square feet and how much uh, fumes for carbon monoxide. I mean, I calculated all that, wrote a 17 page letter to Ginger and my three children mm. uh, to say my goodbyes, had a picture of them uh, with me in the car. Mm. And we had a groundskeeper for eight years that showed up at 8.30 every morning for eight years. Yeah. And I wanted him to find me. The, the garage was detached from, it was a circular driveway and the garage was on the opposite side of the house. And I wanted him to find me and not my family. I didn't want one of my kids to find me. Yeah. And he came, something tugged on his heart and he came at 6.30 after showing up at 8.30 for eight years in a row. He showed up mm. at 6.30. Wow. And I had it calculated, I would have been dead by about quarter to 6.30 to quarter to seven. He showed up at 6.30. I was unconscious. He opened the garage pulled the car out. That way, you know, the fumes weren't getting worse. Uh, I was taken to the hospital, hospitalized for about a month. They measured carbon monoxide levels. They said I would have been dead in 20 minutes. Wow. So if he would have showed up at 20 to 7 or quarter to 7, I would have been, if he showed up at 830, I would have been gone almost two hours before. Yeah. But he showed up two hours early and it saved my life. And he, I was so mad at him that he saved my life. I just hated him at that point because now I got to think of another way to kill myself. Yeah, and and now I got to go to prison because I I'm, I'm going to be alive, yeah. and I thought it'd make it it would save it for my family that it's this lifeboat that holds four people and I'm the fifth person it makes the whole boat sink, and they they can float if I'm gone, is what I thought. So I I was still very depressed. I treated for post traumatic stress disorder and some of the things happen when you wear a wire for ten hours a day for for three years and. And um, and I was hospitalized and treated and brought home. And an amazing thing is, I mean, I still thought well, even when I came home, I got to find a way to make it work next time. And thought about how can I get a gun? I didn't have a, a pistol, and I kept thinking about different ways. And and uh, a guy from CBMC read about me in the newspaper. A guy from Christian Businessmen Connection, CBMC. His name was Ian Howes. Read about me. He's a, a CFO of a pharmaceutical company. Someone I would listen to, you know, me being a divisional president of, of the biotech division at ADM, mm -hmm. president of the division, the MCFO of a biotech company. And he reached out to me and I never forget. I didn't know him. And he said, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life. And you're going to find your true purpose in life with the journey you're ready to start. And I'm hearing that. And I'm thinking, this is the craziest thing I've heard. I'm seven months from leaving for eight and a half years to federal prison. And he's saying it's the beginning of my life. And I said, Ian, I tell you, if that's the case, I want to know more about that. I, I need to hear more about that. So yeah. things that I wouldn't have listened to prior to that, when I'm flying around on a corporate jet with all the world's distractions, I was hopeless and helpless and broken now. So I started to listen to him and he had a study called Operation Timothy, a tool that CBMC has. And Operation Timothy was a way of very, uh, a very gentle, non-threatening way to introduce me to God and, and Jesus. Even though I went to church, I wasn't listening. This was the first I was really hearing about the gospel through Operation Timothy. And so he started sharing. I still had the science block. It was the only blocks, but it was still giving me a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope. And then my second week in prison, a man named Chuck Colson mm -hmm. showed up. This was seven months after Ian Howes' one-on-one disciple in me. And Chuck Colson showed up, and second week in prison, uh, CEO of uh, Prison Fellowship. Uh, he was the White House counsel, special White House counsel under President Nixon, had an office in his 30s in the Oval Office, next to the Oval Office, working for President Nixon, went to prison on the Watergate scandals in the 70s, yeah, became yeah. a Christian, and it changed his life forever. And he showed up. I didn't even know who he was. I knew President Nixon, obviously, but I didn't know uh, Chuck Colson because I was in high school when the whole Watergate scandal happened. And he started sharing me who he was. He read about me in the newspaper, just like Ian Alice did. <laughs> and he said, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your answer. I said, well, that's exactly what someone's been telling me for seven months. <laughs> and he said, oh, they've been talking to you about Jesus and God. And I said, yes. He said, you surrender your life, Mark, to Jesus. And I said, no, because I've got this eight years of college, especially in the sciences, that says there is no God. And I'm trying to reconcile that. And he said, Mark, do you think there's a PhD scientist that believes in God? And I said, no, I don't think there is. And he started article after article and book after book and discipling me and staying with me. And some of the best scientists in the world that believe in God and the university never talked about that. 
Albert Einstein even wrote an article that only God could create man and only God could create the universe. They sure didn't share that when I was at the university about Albert Einstein. And Sir Isaac Newton, a famous scientist, wrote as much about Jesus as he did about science. They sure didn't share that in a secular university. And it was dozens of scientists like that that I knew of well, not personally, but I knew you know, they had a lot of credibility to me mm-hmm. that believed in God, but that was never shared during my university days. And I remember I read a book called Surprised by Faith. An atheist uh, scientist, biologist in Minnesota tried to prove to the world that God did not exist. He studied it, got obsessed with it. And after studying it for about 10 years, a PhD biologist, so I could understand the language, it proved to him that God does exist and Jesus is the son of God. And I finished that book, Surprised by Faith, by Dr. by Dr. Don Byerly, and I gave my life to Christ that Amen. night. Amen. Amen. In June of 1998, June 4th of 98, my third month in prison. So did life Chuck change? Chuck Tolson helped me break the science block. So did life change for you right then? Did you feel feel it or, you know, was it, you know, take some time afterwards and more mentorship and well, I tell you this much, that it was my third month in prison. It was a month after I turned 41. I'm not getting out of prison to 49. So I have eight years yet to go after that. It's my third month. And basically, it, it gave me a peace and contentment where I didn't think about killing myself anymore. I thought, hey, I've got hope now. I can get through this. Yeah. And then a couple months after that, I started, as, as Ian Howes and Chuck Colson were discipling me, I started discipling guys with Operation Timothy in prison. And I saw how rewarding that was. And then the guy would tell me he doesn't he doesn't have a GED. And I'd help him with being a PhD in biochemistry. I'd help him study and get a GED. And then I helped some get a two-year degree in correspondence that uh, some of the prisons were offering free of charge to Ohio, Ohio, not Ohio State, but Ohio University in Athens as an inmate college program by uh, correspondence. I helped some of these guys get two-year degrees. Some of the ones that spoke Spanish, I helped them learn English and write English and read English and help them get GEDs. So I'm $20 a month. So I'm two or three million a year for eight years. And now I'm $20 a month for eight years. And and I tell you, I became a free man my first year in prison and found how rewarding that it was to help somebody else besides myself because I had never experienced that, that servant leadership opportunity. I'd never experienced serving and helping others. Yeah. Mark, I'm fascinated by, by the story you should do, what you, you share about the time in prison, because you were in prison, your your body was physically not free, but you but you found the real freedom, which is the freedom in your spirit, in your mind. And, you know, and, you, and when you talk about Colson and, and the other gentleman from CBM. Ian Howe, Ian Howe. Ian, Ian, exactly. I should know Ian's name with my involvement, but uh that you talk, you're talking about this transformation of your mind, and you know, and that's what Scripture talks about: be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And and you're, and, and you're talking about the books and the articles and everything. I mean, I don't think I don't think we we, we I don't think there's enough intentionality towards that transformation process. I think we want to hear it from a, a podcast or from uh, the pulpit, but but there's a lot of work that it sounds like was put in by you working with Ian, with, 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 with Mr. Colson to really change that mind and to break that block of those eight years of education and smart people at Cornell. Yes, it was. It's, it was a several months, you know, seven months with Ian Howes, about three months with Chuck Colson. I mean, it was, you know, you're talking about a 10 month process of me learning and growing. And especially I had to see some scientific proof that God exists because of that hearing so often in the university that, that the science doesn't support God. So I saw the opposite for people like even Albert Einstein and yeah. Sir Isaac Newton that, and Francis Collins who discovered the human genomes who's a Christian. They never shared that in the university that he was a Christian who discovered the human genome. And, and yeah, there was a lot of work in there for me and a lot of reading and learning and discipleship, one-on-one discipleship from Chuck Colson and Ian Howes, but eventually I got it uh, to the point that if someone asked me today, and I know they have asked my wife in the Q&A, what happens if I would have signed that six-month plea agreement? I don't think I would have listened to Ian Howes and Chuck Colson if they showed up with a six-month a short sentence. sentence. Yes, I think I needed to be broken with the world's distraction. I'm not sure I needed eight and a half years, but I do think I needed a, a couple of years. I really do. I think yeah, I needed those. Yeah. I needed to be remolded and those distractions out of the way. Mm-hmm. And that longer sentence gave me that. And as 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 messy it is to wear a wire three years in prison for eight and a half, I thank God for that brokenness today. 
because I was in prison to that addiction of greed and caught up in the world, pride and greed, that uh, Bon Jovi rock star life. That was prison. And then I'm in prison, as you as you mentioned, and, and became a free man my first year. People don't have to be in a in a physical prison to be in prison. Because right. I was in prison, and then when I'm physically in a prison, I was a free man. Mm-hmm. That, what a, what that, that's a <laughs> that's a, probably you know blow people's mind, but it, the fact that that is the reality. And 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 as you look back now, um, and and actually maybe that's probably more to the story, but uh, that period in your life really was was it seemed like that's when the game really changed for you. It really did. I, I really did. I saw how rewarding it was to serve others. And then I've been out almost a couple decades now, and I'm still got five Timothys now. I've had Timothys for 25, 25 years because I saw the the impact that on me. And two of those are in prison, by the way. I'm discipling a couple of guys in prison, just like Chuck Golson Amen. did me, because I saw the impact it had on me, and it changed my life forever. I mean, think about the job I have. I mean, even it's a large company, but it's about prayer groups and purpose driven and, and finding purpose in your life and servant leadership. And it's about how rewarding it is to serve. And it's all about living a life of significance as compared to that life of success, the way the world defines success. At Cornell, I would define myself, how big's my house? What's my title? How big is the company that I'm going to join? You know, that was the success because that's the way the world defines it. How much money you earn. But all of a sudden, I'm $20 in prison and I'm finding more peace and contentment and more happiness at $20 than I was at seven figures in the millions. It's because I learned how rewarding it was to help somebody else. And that's the life Amen. of significance that I learned. And I, and I, I never experienced that in that corporate America prior to prison. And it took you to prison and, you know, those mentors who the God's calling and poured into you. And uh, because of that, you know, now you're able to do that to others. Yeah, absolutely. And then the companies that, you know, with all those three years through the courts, we lost almost everything we had, nine million in fines. uh, Financially, the lawyers that I had over three years that I would not have had with a six-month sentence, the companies that I spoke from on the price fixing gave my wife a whistleblower reward for turning me in. So Coca-Cola in Atlanta and Tyson Foods and a lot of the companies supported my family that were the victims of the price fixing because they were so appreciative. It was going on for 12 years, and my wife blew the lid on it. So they're appreciative of her and appreciative of me wearing a wire. So they finance my family when I'm in prison for those eight and a half years. A miracle of God that is. My yeah, family is. visited me every weekend. I was in three different states because you move to a better place with good behavior. So good behavior. Eventually, I even got to the Navy base in Florida, Pensacola, Florida, for five years. You know, with good behavior, got me to good places. My family moved to each place, visited wow. me every weekend. We're married 43 years as of the past couple of days. A miracle, 43 years. Right. Think about that. The divorce rate in prison is through the roof. It's in the 90% range. We had everything against us. Our marriage surviving. In reality, I would have lost my marriage staying at ADM and going to prison saved my marriage. Not because of prison, but because of knowing God and changing me and who I was. You know, I had to look in the mirror. The thing that had to change wasn't the world. The thing that had to change was me. Yes. I had to change. And I had to repent and I had to change my change my ways. And I had to look at God. The only way the world's going to change, I, I got to look in the mirror and change myself yeah. and repent. And that saved my marriage. The brokenness saved my marriage. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, the, you, this is so I'm, I'm just blown away because, Charles, I mean, you've been doing this for a little bit now. And there are probably people who will struggle to understand what you're saying, Mark, that it was the. It was the crucible, the brokenness and everything that actually became the catalyst for so much growth and mm-hmm. healing in God's work. And it reminds me, I heard uh, Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans, I think he says something like, God allows us, some, God will allow you to hit rock bottom so you can know that he is the rock at the bottom, right? Amen. As you're talking, that's what I'm thinking through. But have you ran across people who sort of struggle to understand, like, what are you saying? You lost all this money and you lost this and you lost that. And you sound like a little bit like Job in some sense before everything was restored. And you're telling me your marriage was saved by that. You became free because when you were in prison, when all these things that seem horrible happened, like, how do you, like, when you, do you meet people who struggle understanding that? And, and how do you get them to understand it? And maybe, I guess, what's your story? Yeah, and I do especially these uh, guys I disciple, a lot of the ones I disciple aren't Christians yet, just like I wasn't when me and Al's first reached out to me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm discipling them and they, 
and they're asking those questions. You know, how can you, boy, where you was with the jet and the plane and the Ferrari and you're, you're like Bon Jovi and then yeah. you're at $20 a month and you're happy and you're content. Yeah. How can that be? So, yeah, I do have to break that down. And I say the successes and the bonuses almost destroyed my life and was separating me from God and separating me from my family. And then all of a sudden I'm in prison that brought me to God. I mean, in reality, eight years of prison, and it's not because of the prison, it's because the guys that disciple me getting to know God, but eight years in prison did me a lot better for my marriage and definitely from saving my soul and knowing God than eight years of college. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt about it. I mean, yeah. it saved my soul for you know life eternity by knowing God, and it also saved my marriage, and it put me on a track in my career. I was eight years with uh, CBMC prior to Coca-Cola Consolidated. I was COO for four years, a national director for the four years prior to that, and teaching discipleship around the country uh, and the impact of discipleship and speaking at lunches and prayer breakfast events. And and I tell you, um, God has given me so much more of a rewarding life. And now that I'm in my 60s, I want to finish strong. And I think of Paul in scripture from Saul to Paul and how he put blinders on and, and you know, just gave it everything he had. And I'm, I'm, I'm that now because I see this sense of, of urgency. You know, my dad died at 90, but there's no guarantee I live till 90. My wife's still, or my mom's still alive at 89, but there's no guarantee it could end tomorrow. But whatever years, if it's tomorrow or 30 more years like my dad was, no matter what, I'm, I'm more towards the end than I am from the beginning. And I want to right. give it everything I have. And I really want to live that life of significance. When I cross that line into heaven, I, I want Jesus to say, well done, faithful servant. I really do. It's, I just want to serve well. And I feel a tremendous sense of urgency to find those other Mark Whitakers out there that uh, that are caught up in the world. And because there's lots of them. And I just want to reach every Mark Whitaker and say, hey, wake up, young man. There's so much more to this than where you're heading. Yeah, man. And that's and that's the same with me, uh, you know, not with the greed, but the just the drug addiction and uh, trying to fill that void, whether it's the drugs or the women and, uh, you know, feeling alone when you're not alone. You know, you have Lord, the Lord, he's living in you if you allow him to. And, um, you know, same with you. I grew up in a Christian home. And uh, when I got out of high school, I went to a Christian school. Um, graduated and then college and I was on my own and uh, it didn't take long for the world to suck me in and uh, for me to enjoy the ways of the world. And, uh, and then when, you know, traumatic events happened, you know, how do you cope with that? Well, I'm going to go party and just numb it. And, you know, that continues and continues. And until you realize one day you're here and then the next day you're not and you wake up and found out uh, with your dad sitting on your left that you OD'd and died. And that was something I said would never happen to me, you know, facing prison time and uh, dying from an overdose. And those happen within less than a month of each other. And, you know, I would not uh, have it any other way. You know, if I could go and redo it now. I would, but I can't, and I wouldn't be who I am today without those events uh, and really Amen. understanding how precious life is and uh, you know, how the Lord works. And he'll you know make you and allow you to hit rock bottom to understand who he really is. And, you know, same with your story. You know, it took you going to, to prison for eight and a half years to and a really suicide attempt before Lord, that. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And suicide yeah. attempts uh, and. You know, where would we be if, you know, we had those suicides had, you know, been successful or, you know, you had taken that six month plea deal. Um, you know, we I would have lost my family. I would have came out, as my wife said, been the same greedy man that I went in and probably would have lost my family. Probably would have made a yeah, lot of money and back to the world, but would have lost my family. Correct. Yeah. And that's the same with me if I hadn't, uh, you know, died and been on life support because uh, I had never had consequences strong enough to really wake me up and scare me straight almost. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for brokenness either. That's one. Thank God for brokenness. And I think that is still something we struggle to embrace, but I mean, I know, you know, and you know, for the folks who listen to to episode 28, you know, and 
yeah, I mean, I wouldn't change my story. It's 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 been very much a part of of who I am today, and it's what I look to pass on as well. And and this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love Charles when we met and we talked. And I'm like, I love this. And then I met you, and I'd heard about you, uh, uh, Mark, and then meeting you. And it's like people who embrace the story and this and the power of their story, you know, because God is involved in the story. And and I love when you said that uh, the 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 groundskeeper. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know. Is that is that the right term for the person? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at six thirty versus usually eight thirty. And yeah, I, I, for eight I, years he never showed up at eight thirty ever. Yeah, never eight years, right? Yeah. So, so have you? So you've probably been able to look back at your story before you really started pursuing God intentionally and see that God was moving in your life all along. Yeah, right. Something stirred his heart, and he showed up, and that was me in the garage. And before, and if he showed up at eight thirty, I would have been gone almost an hour and a half earlier. I would have been dead. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's God. That's a God incident, not a coincidence. That's a God incident. I love that one. And and God had his hands on your life, even when you weren't pursuing him. Right. And I think there are a lot of people who, who, who probably don't feel that right now, but I know looking back and telling my story and there are moments where we heard stories later on after we kind of escaped and it was like, oh yeah, God kept this from happening. God kept that from happening. God called this person to show up. I don't know how. And I'm hearing the same sort of parallels, you know, with your story, Charles, and certainly with you, Mark, that that even though it seems like God isn't moving, he's moving. And with time, we, we, we'll see, we'll look back and say, oh yeah, that thing that happened or didn't happen, it was yeah. God. Amen. Yeah. Wow. And then my marriage was survived, which 98% right. divorce, exactly. 98, some have quote 99% some do. If you serve five years and longer, I served eight and a half and we're married. Yeah. 40, that's a miracle. Right. And the company's taking care of my yeah, family. I stole from that's a miracle. Me working for a company that was yeah. a victim of the case for is a miracle. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Mean, this, and yeah, exactly. it's a miracle. Exactly. These are mar- Only God and can the do family it. visited you every weekend. Yeah, it's a miracle. There are like five families out of 700 inmates. Yeah. Yeah. They moved to each state, three different states to be next to me. Miracles. Only God could do. Yeah. And I want to share the world. I want to share now in my 60s and closer to the end of my life in the beginning. I want to share with the world. God's put heavy on my heart to be a witness and share to the world that God, I'm a PhD scientist. That God does exist and Jesus is the Son of God, and I have no doubt about it. And I say that as a PhD oh, scientist amen. from an Ivy League school. God right. does exist. Right. I think there's a book. Amen. He he is real. He is real. Man, it reminded me that you said the book was surprised by faith. Faith. Yeah, surprised by faith by a scientist yeah, named Don Byer, B-I-E-R-L-E, who was really trying to disprove God. And the more he studied it, it proved to him God does exist and Jesus is the Son of God. And I read that book and I said, how can you be a PhD scientist and not believe in God after that? Mm, Wow. So that's a game changer. Sounds like we should definitely read. Yeah. I want to read for all of our listeners. Uh, And there's also, uh, real quick, there's a movie based off of this story for our listeners if they want to. Yeah. Matt Matt uh, Damon played me, my twin. If they look me up, they can see I look just like Matt Damon, (laughs) my twin. Everybody's laughing, so they know that's not the case. And uh, but that's the it ended in prison, so it's not the faith journey. It's just the crime yeah. drama. They did film a uh, suicide attempt. They took that out because it's kind of a comedy, so it lost the seriousness of the case. So they took the suicide attempt. It would have been better with it in, but being a comedy, they took that out. And so the FBI was so upset with the accuracy of the movie and the fact that it was kind of comical on such a serious story. They did a documentary to combat the movie, and that's on my website uh, on Discovery Channel called Undercover, and that's on markwhitaker.com. And people watch the documentary with the three real agents on Discovery Channel, and they watch the movie, and it's, 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 people say it's two different stories. One shows the real seriousness where the FBI says that they catch this guy wearing a wire, they're going to kill him. And the movie never showed that seriousness. It made it like it's all fun and, and games and, and all that. But uh, God used that movie as painful. The brokenness and the suicide attempt. It had no redemption story. It ends with me going to prison. But I tell you, God took that movie that was painful to us. And I never presented it any place prior to that movie. And I was getting seven or eight invitations a month to sh- come share the rest of the story. What happened the last 25 years uh, after the <laughs> after the movie? So God took a movie that was probably a little more. It was an atheist who did the movie. So mm-hmm. uh, he goes public as an atheist. So. So therefore, it doesn't have God at all. But God took that and says, you know what? I'm going to turn and use use this for good. And Amen. only God can do that. And, and he gave a platform like we're doing right now here today to share the rest of the story. 
Yeah. That's amazing. And this is something I never thought I'd be doing. The redemption story. Sharing my story and having, you know, people want to share their stories because we all need to hear stories to know that we're not alone. So it took me dying and reconnecting with KC, who uh, is our tech guy. And uh, if you're anyone listening, go check out episode 11 to hear his story. But um, us reconnecting and um, to get this platform going, something I never thought I would do. And uh, but it's needed and it's something I you know don't know if there's many others out there like that where people just come on and share their stories to know, hey, you're not alone. We all have struggles, you know, uh, they're different, but we all have struggles. And together we can do this thing called life because life's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> God can turn those troubles to good. I mean, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and live according to his purpose. That means God's going to take the good, the bad and the ugly in your life and use it all for good. Like what we're doing here to, right now, use it all for good if we let him, if Amen. we let him. And we have to let him and invite him in. Uh, and it takes yeah. uh, those struggles and uh, prison time, uh, dying, uh, escaping a civil war. Yeah. Uh, for you know you to really understand and see and know who he is yeah wow this has been brokenness brokenness amen brokenness the blessing of brokenness yes well before we wrap up is there any uh, advice that you would give our listeners that has helped you um throughout your life uh or something that you've lived by and uh, carried on that's really helped you and molded and strengthened uh, you as a man and a believer? You know, the advice I would give is this, is that God will do so many things in your life. Even when you think there is no more hope and helpless, like Charles, you were, we all were helpless and hopeless at one time. And look where God has us on this track today because we're on his track and we turned the steering wheel over to him instead of us trying to, to drive, we let him drive and, 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 and boy, he guides us and keeps us on a track that's just so rewarding. Uh, the only thing I'd like to share with, no matter how bad you think, you think things are, no matter how hopeless you are or how, how helpless you are, that God will use that. Even the, even is the darkness you're in right now, he will use that. And he will use that in ways because everybody around the world and broke in every family of five, there's someone even broken even today in those houses. And God will use that for you to help others through similar type brokenness. And he will use it all for good. And, and, and how rewarding it is to live a life of significance because you want to leave the world. Take it from someone already older. Now you want to leave the world a better place than you came, no matter what your past is. God will use all that past for good if you let him. And that's what I say, no matter how hopeless and helpless you are, boy, get to know God. Pray and, and, and have God in your life and pray for God to guide your life. And he will put you through seasons, your seasons in your life that you never dreamed were possible and would be the most reward, rewarding seasons of your life yet to come where the best is ahead of you and not behind you. Amen. If you can get through today and tomorrow's a new opportunity and just allow him to work and uh, just know that you're in a season and, you know, you're not alone. He's with you and you will get through this. Better days are to come. I, I remember waking up in prison and I'm thinking, God, I'm just waking up. Think about it. Waking up in prison, excited and say, God, how can you use me? today. And I never thought that when I was making millions of dollars in one of the largest companies in the world, I woke up and I think, Oh man, I got to go do this again. I'm just doing this for the money. This is no, this is not rewarding. It's just all about the money and the car. And then all of a sudden I'm in prison and waking up and say, God, how can you use me today? And then by the time I'm going to bed, thank you, God, for what opportunities you shared with me today, even in prison, Amen. the opportunities you gave me. You know, I know we're trying to wrap up, Charles. Just when you, when Mark was speaking, it just brought a question to my mind. Did you ever kind of ask yourself, "Well, God, why is this happening to me?" Because I think a lot of folks still, you know, you're going through stuff, and you're a Christian, so you're, you you got saved and you're free in your in your spirit, and you've got that freedom that that the, the freedom that Christ came to set us free for. But you're still physically in prison, right? You know, you're not going home to your wife and your kids every evening, and so you're, you know, and so you're you're living this 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 reality that you're in prison. Did you did you struggle at all with like God? Why why is this happening? You know, why am I going through this? I'm a Christian now. Why am I going through? I try to do the right 
right thing? Why is my, you know, whatever. Did you ever struggle with those sort of the quote? I did. And even after a couple of years in prison, the FBI started visiting me in prison. They're even still today. The three FBI agents, two judges, uh, my prosecutor have all applied for a presidential pardon for me. And that even started even when I was in prison. They're pushing even a lot harder even now. But even in prison, I thought, well, God, these, they're trying to pardon me. You could pardon me and let me out of this prison today. And it was a couple of years in prison. They start trying to pardon me, the FBI agents. And I and I look back and even during that prison time, I learned so much in discipling guys. I learned so much having all those hours of free time that I could read scripture and get to know God. God was basically God was using that time for me to be a better servant after I got out. And I can see that at the end of each day when I had three hours for quiet time and when I had the chance to f- disciple five, six guys at a time through Operation Timothy. I could see God at the end of the day say, God, I get what you're doing. You're equipping me for the rest of my life when I get out. And he did. He used that time to mold me. That time was some of the most productive eight years of my life was at $20 a month. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Wow. Yes. Thank you, uh, Mark Whitaker, for taking time out of your busy schedule and just coming on and sharing your story, a story of hope and redemption and uh, faith Um, and just of story that, uh, of greed, but that's not who you are anymore. You, uh, you know, it took you going to prison and, uh, to learn and to know who God really is. And, uh, for our listeners, if you allow him to, he will, uh, do that in your life as well. So thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me, sir. And thank you for everything you're doing for CBMC. Yes. Thanks for having me, you guys. What an honor to be here. Yes. Thank you. And look forward to staying in touch. And uh, UJ, thank you for co-hosting and you'll be uh, on uh, more frequently now helping out with the show. So thank you all uh, for tuning in this week to the Rabbit Hole Show. Uh, This week's episode again, Mark Whitaker. Thank you. Please uh, go subscribe, uh, follow on uh, whatever platform you listen to, uh, Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts, and uh, on Instagram, uh, The Rabbit Hole Show, all underscores. And then if you have any questions, comments, want to come on the show, uh, please uh, feel free to send us an email, show 21 at gmail. Dot com. Uh, stay tuned for next week's episode. And again, guys, thank y'all. It's been a very special episode, a story of redemption and hope. So thank y'all. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.